Simon and Schuster Audio presents One Bullet Away The Making of a Marine Officer by Nathaniel Fick Read by the author Part 1 Peace We should remember that one man is much the same as another and that he is best who is trained in the severest school. Thucydides Fifteen of us climbed aboard the ancient white school bus. Wire mesh covered its windows, and four black words ran along its sides. United States Marine Corps. Dressed casually in shorts and sandals, we spread out and sat alone with our bags. Some sipped coffee from paper cups, and a few unfolded newspapers they had brought. I found a seat near the back as the bus started with a roar and a cloud of smoke blew through the open windows. A second lieutenant, looking crisp in his gabardine and khaki uniform, sat in the front row. He had just graduated from officer candidate school and would escort us on the hour's drive to the Marine Corps base in Quantico, Virginia. Shortly after we pulled away from the recruiting office, he stood in the aisle and turned to face us. I expected a welcome, a joke, some commiseration. Honor, courage, and commitment are the Marines' core values, the lieutenant shouted over the engine. He sounded scripted, but also sincere. If you can't be honest at OCS, how can the Corps trust you to lead men in combat? Combat. I glanced around the bus's gunmetal interior, surprised to see people reading or pretending to sleep. No one answered the lieutenant's question. He stood there in the aisle, glaring at us, and I sat up a little straighter. The lieutenant was my age, but he looked different. Shorter hair, of course, and broader shoulders. But it was more than that. He had an edge, something in his jaw or his brow that made me self-conscious. I turned toward the window to avoid his gaze. Families drove next to us on their way to the lake or to the beach. Kids wearing headphones gawked, surely wondering what losers were riding a school bus in the summertime. A girl in an open jeep stood and started to raise her shirt before being pulled back down by a laughing friend. They waved and accelerated past. I thought of my friends spending their summer vacations in New York and San Francisco, working in air-conditioned office towers and partying at night. Staring through the wire mesh at the bright day, I thought, This must be what it's like on the ride to Sing Sing. I wondered why I was on that bus. I went to Dartmouth intending to go to med school. Failing a chemistry class had inspired my love of history, and I ended up majoring in the classics. By the summer of 1998, my classmates were signing six-figure contracts as consultants and investment bankers. I didn't understand what we, at age 22 could possibly be consulted about. Others headed off to law school or medical school for a few more years of reading instead of living. None of it appealed to me. I wanted to go on a great adventure, to prove myself, to serve my country. I wanted to do something so hard that no one could ever talk shit to me. In Athens or Sparta, my decision would have been easy. 
I felt as if I'd been born too late. There was no longer a place in the world for a young man who wanted to wear armor and slay dragons. Dartmouth encouraged deviation from the trampled path, but only to join organizations like the Peace Corps or Teach for America. I wanted something more transformative, something that might kill me, or leave me better, stronger, more capable. I wanted to be a warrior. My family had only a short martial tradition. My maternal grandfather, like many in his generation, had served in World War II. He was a Navy officer in the South Pacific, and his ship, the escort carrier Natoma Bay, fought at New Guinea, Leyte Gulf, Iwo Jima, and Okinawa, often supporting Marine invasion forces ashore. At 6.35 on the morning of June 7, 1945, so the family story went, only two months before the end of the war, a Japanese kamikaze crashed into the Natoma Bay's flight deck. The explosion tore a hole in the steel 12 feet wide and 20 feet long. Shrapnel peppered my grandfather's body. My mother remembers watching him pick pieces of metal from his skin 20 years later. He had some of that shrapnel melted into a lucky horseshoe, which was shown to me with great reverence when I was a child. My father enlisted in the Army in 1968. When most of his basic training class went to Vietnam, he received orders to the Army Security Agency. He spent a year in Bad Eibling, Germany, eavesdropping on Eastern Bloc radio transmissions and waiting for the Soviets to roll through the Fulda Gap. He completed OCS just as President Richard Nixon began drawing down the military and took advantage of an early out to go to law school. But my dad was proud to have been a soldier. The Army sent me a letter during my junior year at Dartmouth, promising to pay for graduate school. The Navy and Air Force did the same, promising skills and special training. The Marine Corps promised nothing. Whereas the other services listed their benefits, the Corps asked, Do you have what it takes? If I was going to serve in the military, I would be a Marine. A few months before, I'd seen a poster in the dining hall advertising a talk by Tom Ricks. Then the Wall Street Journal's Pentagon correspondent, Ricks had recently written a book about the Marines. I sat up most of one night reading it. I arrived early to get a good seat, and listened as Ricks explained the Corps' culture and the state of civil-military relations in the United States. His review of the Marines, or at least my interpretation of it, was glowing. The Marine Corps was the last bastion of honor in society, a place where young Americans learned to work as a team, to trust one another and themselves, and to sacrifice for a principle. Hearing it from a recruiter, I would have been skeptical. But here was a journalist an impartial observer. The crowd was the usual mix of students, faculty, and retired alumni. After the talk, a young professor stood. How can you support the presence of ROTC at a place like Dartmouth, she asked. It will militarize the campus and threaten our culture of tolerance. Wrong, replied Ricks. It will liberalize the military. He explained that in a democracy, the military should be representative of the people, it should reflect the best of American society, not stand apart from it. Ricks used words such as duty and honor without cynicism, something I'd not often heard at Dartmouth. 
His answer clinched my decision to apply for a slot at Marine OCS during the summer between my junior and senior years of college. I would have laughed at the idea of joining the Corps on a bet or because of a movie, but my own choice was almost equally capricious. Although I had reached the decision largely on my own, Tom Ricks, in an hour-long talk on a cold night at Dartmouth, finally convinced me to be a Marine. But even joining the Marines didn't seem as crazy as it had to my parents' generation. This was 1998, not 1968. The United States was cashing in its post-Cold War peace dividend. Scholars talked about the end of history, free markets spreading prosperity throughout the world, and the death of ideology. I would be joining a peacetime military. At least that's the rationale I used when I broke the news to my parents. They were surprised but supportive. The Marines, my dad said, will teach you everything I love you too much to teach you. The Marine Corps base in Quantico straddles Interstate 95, sprawling across thousands of acres of pine forest and swamp 30 miles south of Washington. Our bus rumbled through the gate, and we drove past rows of peeling warehouses and brick buildings identified only by numbered signs. They looked like the remnants of some dead industry, like the boarded-up mills on the riverbanks of a New Hampshire town. We drove farther and farther onto the base, along the edge of a swamp, through miles of trees, far enough to feel as if they could kill us here and no one would ever know. That, of course, was the desired effect. When the air brakes finally hissed and the door swung open, we sat in the middle of a blacktop parade deck the size of three football fields. Austere brick barracks surrounded it. A sign at the blacktop's edge read, United States Marine Corps Officer Candidate School, Ductus Exemplo. I recognized the motto from Latin class, Leadership by Example. For two days, we shuffled from line to line for haircuts, gear issue, and a battery of physical tests. Candidates who had returned after being dropped from previous OCS classes explained this routine. The schedule was designed to minimize the number of us who flunked out for high blood pressure. On day three, with physical evaluations completed, the hammer would fall. On the morning of the ominous third day, all the candidates lined up and moved from bin to bin, selecting green camouflage blouses and trousers, nylon belts with two olive drab canteens attached, and odd items such as bug spray labeled repellent, arthropod. Later, we assembled for lunch in a World War II-era Quonset hut. Baking in the sun-beaten aluminum oven, we munched processed meat sandwiches and apples, a prepared lunch the Marines called a boxed nasty, as the school's commanding officer, or CO, outlined his expectations of us. The colonel's lantern jaw, craggy nose, and graying hair were straight from a recruiting commercial. He looked as if he could wrestle any of us to the floor, and authority ran deep in his voice. We seek to identify in each candidate those qualities of intellect, human understanding, and moral character that enable a person to inspire and to control a group of people successfully. Leaders, he said. A candidate's presence under pressure is a key indicator of leadership potential. In trying to identify Marine leaders who may someday face combat, we want to see who can think and function under stress. Stress at OCS is created in many ways, as you will see.
When the colonel concluded, he called forward the school's staff, introducing each Marine. All had served as drill instructors. At OCS, though, they were called sergeant instructors, and we would address them by that title, their rank, and their name. The staff marched smartly down the aisle and stood at attention before us, khaki uniforms with splashes of colored ribbons, eyes focused over our heads on the back wall of the room, no smiles. They were sergeants, staff sergeants, and gunnery sergeants, mostly men with 10 to 20 years in the Corps. I saw scars and biceps and tattoos. With introductions complete, the colonel turned to the staff and uttered 10 words that ended our civilian lives. Take charge and carry out the plan of the day. Tables turned over, chairs clattered to the floor, and I forgot all about the half-eaten apple in my hand. We shouldered our bags. Candidates with foresight had brought hiking packs. They stood comfortably, looking ready to strike out down the Appalachian Trail. The truly lost labored with their leather brief bags and suitcases. I fell somewhere in between, striving mightily to be inconspicuous with an oversized duffel bag. I snuck a look at one instructor's name tag. Olds. Three stripes on his shoulder. Sergeant Olds. Don't eyeball me, candidate. Do you want to ask me out on a date? You look like you want to ask me out. No, Sergeant Instructor Sergeant Olds. Go ahead, candidate. Keep whispering. And keep looking deep into my eyes. His voice dropped to a whisper, and he moved in close. I watched a vein throbbing in his temple and struggled not to make eye contact. I dare you to ask me out. Your chucklehead classmates here might get a laugh out of it, but I swear it'll be the last thing you ever do. This is theater, right? I'd seen Full Metal Jacket. It's all a joke. But it didn't feel like a joke. When Old spoke to me, icy adrenaline washed through my chest. My legs shook. The worst part was that Olds knew he'd gotten to me. He would, I feared, increase the pressure. At exactly five o'clock each morning, Candidates roaming the squad bay on the night's rotating guard threw the switch on the fluorescent lights. It was like shooting the day from a cannon. The instructors burst out of the office at the head of the long room. We had five seconds to launch from our racks, slide into our black rubber flip-flops, referred to as shower shoes in the Marines, and assume the position of attention with our toes along the black line that ran the length of the squad bay. No head starts, no wearing shower shoes in the rack, Don't yawn, don't wince, and don't be late. After we got dressed, we piled outside to form up on the physical training field. The centerpiece of the PT field was a red wooden platform. Atop it, silhouetted against the rising sun, stood a British Royal Marine color sergeant. He was on exchange from the UK and clearly enjoyed beating platoons of aspiring American officers into shape. Ah, good morning, candidates. Your steady diet of Big Macs and Jerry Springer has surely prepared you for this morning's activities. This morning you'll do the log run. Give me a squad to demonstrate. Twelve candidates jumped up and jogged to the front of the group. In unison, they snapped to parade rest. Pick up the log. The candidates hoisted a full-size telephone pole onto their shoulders. It was 20 feet long and weighed 400 pounds. The pole reeked of creosote and rubbed off brown on their hands and shoulders. Now run, the color sergeant ordered. They trotted in a circle around the field. See, it's simple. Even you wankers should be able to figure this one out. 
Each squad grab a log, catch me. He took off down the trail. We strategized. Tallest to shortest, otherwise the short guys won't be bearing any of the weight. Tall guys in front will keep the pace high. Dave Adams, a candidate who'd been a football player at William & Mary, was the tallest guy in our squad. So he stood at the front of the pole, with me a foot behind. A dozen squads of a dozen men each struggled off down the trail, looking like millipedes beneath their logs. Legs moved quickly, but progress was slow. We slopped over muddy boots and banged between trunks. Once or twice, the log threatened to roll off our shoulders and crush our feet. I wrapped one arm up over the log and used the other to wipe sweat from my eyes. Ahead of us, the color sergeant bounced along in his running shoes and white tank top, bemoaning the future of the Marine Corps. Your Corps's been around for 223 years, right? Not a bad run. A respectable try, really. The Army will pick up your slack. He reached a fork in the trail and turned left. He's headed toward the Ford. I wonder how we're going to do that. The voice came from behind me where candidates were struggling with the weight and slippery footing. The ford was a deep pool of stagnant water sitting in the middle of the trail. Stopping at the water's edge, the instructor picked up a rock the size of a bowling ball. He waited for the squads to pant into position all around him before heaving it into the ford. When it splashed into the water and sank out of sight, four little heads popped up. You're doing a good job so I'm going to show you where the snakes are. Go get wet. We joined the snakes in the ford, splashing out to the deep water and swimming next to the log like tugboats pushing a barge. Our boots filled with water and threatened to drag us to the bottom. An hour after we'd started, Dave led us back onto the sunny field where we had begun. He was singing cadence, and we echoed with all the breath we had left. Born in the woods, raised by a bear. Dave jogged easily under the log. Double set of dog teeth, triple coat of hair. The pain started to subside for me, too. Two magazines and my M16. I'm lean and mean. By suffering together, we could spread the hardship around until it almost disappeared. I'm a U.S. Marine. Olds was waiting to march us back to the squad bay. Cut that trash out. You ain't Marines. I thought I saw a glimmer of satisfaction beneath his dismissal. PT showers, you have four minutes. We're already late for chow. It wasn't even 7 a.m. The platoon marched in three columns of about a dozen candidates each. In addition to marching everywhere we went, we usually spent an hour or two each evening on the parade deck. Olds called it driving the bus. We would march from one end to the other, about face, march back, and repeat. We carried M16s on our right shoulders, gripping the buttstock with a hand extended parallel to the deck. In the beginning, Sergeant Olds had called our cadence, but he slowly shifted the responsibility to us. It wasn't words so much as a haunting wail, rising and falling like a plaintive southern spiritual. But the wail had a beat, and our heels struck the pavement in unison. Halfway across the parade deck on our way to the chow hall, Olds pulled me from the formation to take over calling the cadence. I screwed it up from the first note. My lefts were rights, my rights were lefts, and the tempo surged and sagged. The platoon worked not to expose me, but it was too confusing. They collapsed into a pitter-patter of mismatched heels, like a group of tourists out for a morning stroll. Olds lit into me. Daggone it, candidate, 
You know what happens to lieutenants who can't even march a platoon? I croaked. No, Sergeant Instructor Sergeant Olds. They get their Marines killed in combat. This fate, at OCS, was promised not only to candidates who couldn't march, but also to those who failed to blacken their boots, polish their brass belt buckles, or put on their socks quickly enough. You want to get your Marines killed? No, Sergeant Olds. I realized my mistake the second it left my lips. Olds shrieked. What did you call me? You think we're drinking buddies? You want to date my sister? No, Sergeant Instructor Sergeant Olds, I yelled as loudly as I could. Candidate, I think you're a soft one. Olds dropped his voice to a low snarl and put his face inches from mine. And I run the soft ones out before they can get Marines killed. You just remember that. Classes filled most of each day between morning PT and evening drill practice on the parade deck. We marched to the classrooms, usually Quonset huts or converted aircraft hangars, and filed silently down the rows of tables. We couldn't sit until Olds gave the command. When the whole platoon stood at attention by its chairs, Olds would roar, Ready? Seats! Kill, we shouted in response. It was an early step toward acclimating us to violence. We had one second to drop into our chairs, or else we'd stand and do it again. We memorized the names and dates of famous battles and the exploits of renowned Marines. We learned the 14 leadership traits, the eight principles of camouflage, and the six battlefield disciplines. The curriculum seemed ridiculous at first. My liberal arts education had valued discussion, debate, and nuanced interpretations of complex ideas. But in combat, we were told, there's rarely time for discussion and debate. Complex ideas must be made simple, or they'll remain ideas and never be put into action. The leadership traits were bearing, courage, decisiveness, dependability, endurance, enthusiasm, initiative, integrity, judgment, justice, knowledge, loyalty, tact, and unselfishness. We drilled them, and every other list, over and over again. I memorized them in the classroom, in the line at the chow hall, and in my rack at night. The purpose, we were promised, was to make them instinctive. They would become innate to our decision-making process and infuse everything we did without even a conscious thought. Halfway through OCS, I was in the spotlight. I couldn't march, failed to appreciate the importance of aligning the right edge of my belt buckle with the right edge of the top button of my trousers and had a masochistic reaction to being screamed at. I stared into my assailant's eyes, prompting a whole new round of abuse. Olds had singled me out so many times that he stopped using my name. He'd say, Well, 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 look who it is. Or, what a surprise. I was in danger of dismissal for failure to adapt. On a Friday afternoon, we lined up our folding camp stools in the back of the squad bay and sat at attention, back straight and hands on our knees, waiting for a speech by our platoon commander. Captain Fanning was a soft-spoken helicopter pilot. I stared at the silver bars on his collar and the gold aviator wings pinned above his left breast. He held a single piece of paper and told us to sit down. Fanning looked at us with a mixture of empathy and disdain. Five weeks down. The mission of OCS is to train, evaluate, and screen. Mainly screen. We want to see who has marine officer potential. It's a game. You have to play by the rules, our rules, the Marine Corps' rules. Most of you are probably college athletes. 
Candidates nodded, grateful for the human connection. Fanning went on. This is no different from football. Learn the rules and play the game. Trust me, this isn't the real core. Just do what you have to do here, and then you can get on with your career and your life. Four more weeks till the crucible starts. The crucible was our final exercise. We'd all heard rumors about three or four days of running through the woods with no food and no sleep. I was distracted, thinking about it, when Fanning looked down at his paper and changed the subject. I want to talk with you today about leadership, five of the Marine Corps' leadership principles that helped me in the fleet. I uncapped my pen, thinking it futile to reduce such complex ideas to a list. But Fanning didn't only run through the five principles. He told us what they meant and how he, as an officer, had used them. First, he counseled, you must be technically and tactically proficient. There was no excuse for not knowing everything about the weapon, radio, aircraft, or whatever else it was you were trying to use. Being a nice guy is great, but plenty of nice guys have gotten half the Marines killed because they didn't know their jobs. Second, make sound and timely decisions. According to Captain Fanning, one of the gravest errors was waiting to have all the information before making a decision. In the fog of combat, you'll never have all the information. A good plan, violently executed now, he urged, was better than a great plan later. Be decisive, act, and be ready to adapt. Fanning's third piece of advice was simple. Set the example. As officers, all eyes would be on us. We would set the tone, and the unit would take its cues from our attitudes, good and bad. Why do we care here about how your uniform looks, Fanning asked us. Because your Marines will care. Sloppiness begets sloppiness, and small inattentions would set us on the slippery slope to large ones. That, according to the Marine Corps, was the causal link between the alignment of my belt buckle and the survival of my future platoon. Fourth, know your men and look out for their welfare. Fanning smiled as he remembered the Marines he'd serve with. They will, he said, follow you through the gates of hell if they trust you truly care about them. This is not about you. Fanning spoke the sentence slowly, emphasizing each word. He explained that the Corps existed for the enlisted infantrymen. Everyone else, you aspiring infantry officers included, is only support. Finally, Fanning exhorted us, train your men as a team. A unit's good morale and esprit de corps depend on each man's feeling part of it. Marines need to know one another's jobs. That includes you and your platoon sergeant, he added. A new lieutenant and his enlisted second-in-command had to share their responsibilities. Too often, Fanning said, platoon commanders focused on the mission while platoon sergeants focused on troop welfare. Each of you has to do both. Fanning drove the point home with a question. What's the difference between you and your platoon sergeant? He paused and then answered it himself. One bullet. Captain Fanning wasn't General George S. Patton in front of an American flag. He didn't rant and rave and wave a pistol in the air. Because of that, his words resonated with me. He gave us a glimpse beyond the fantasy world of OCS. We began to see the connection between practicing and playing, between fake pressure and real pressure. Captain Fanning had explained the purpose of the game. From that afternoon on, I accepted the rules and lived by them. When getting dressed by the numbers, I tried to move faster and yell louder than anyone else. When Olds made me call Cadence, I did it with heart and never backed down. 
he stopped caring that my calls confused the platoon. Marching didn't matter. It was about being cool under pressure. It was about detachment. We had to retain our ability to think when the world was crumbling around us. Not for ourselves, but for our Marines. The crucible started at 10 o'clock one night. After a full day, Sergeant Olds had us sing the hymn as usual. But instead of turning out the lights afterward, we shouldered our packs and left the squad bay for a 10-mile hike through the dark woods. Olds didn't scream much anymore. In the dawn light, Sergeant Olds said it was time for the Quigley. I'd heard about the Quigley. We had all heard about it. Most of OCS was successfully kept under wraps, so each day brought unwelcome surprises. But this muddy trench had become an icon of Quantico's training, the sort of thing generals recalled in speeches. We jogged down a trail through the woods. After a night of hiking without sleep, we stumbled along at half speed. The temperature was already 90 degrees, and sweat soaked my uniform. I panted into a clearing and saw the trail disappear into a bog. A wooden pier extended across it, clearly not intended for me. My path lay in the mud beneath strands of barbed wire next to the pier. I dove under the first strand into the stinking beige water, eager to impress the instructors with my gung-ho. It was deeper than I expected, and I sank beneath the water. I recovered and began to crawl, scratching my way forward beneath the banks of mud. Another candidate struggled along in front of me, and I made it my goal to close the gap between my hands and his boots. Suddenly, he stood straight up, shouting and waving. Something long and black hung from his upper arm. A snake. Christ, I thought, there's snakes in here. I started to stand. A boot heel between my shoulder blades drove me face first back beneath the water. What do you think you're doing, boy? Crawl. Aye, aye, Sergeant Instructor. It came out garbled because mud stuck to the roof of my mouth like peanut butter. I continued pulling myself forward past the candidate with the snake on his arm. The instructor who had kicked me was waiting as I climbed out of the Quigley. You can't compromise a mission and get men killed for a harmless little snake. Not even for a poisonous big snake. Discipline always. Now get out of my sight. His message was clear. You need discipline most when it's hardest to muster. When you're tired, hungry, outside your comfort zone. I struggled for the next two days to stay alert, stay disciplined, and keep my focus on the candidates around me. We worked in squads of 12, rotating a squad leader and attacking through acres of humid woods. Our tactics were unsophisticated. Walk as quietly as possible to the objective and then charge it, wildly firing blanks from our M16s. The mission of OCS was more to gauge spirit than to teach us skills. It rained through both nights, and we slept in Korean War-era pup tents seemingly designed to collect water and channel it onto us. The rain and the gnawing hunger, we received only one meal per day, conspired to keep us awake. On the morning of the fourth day, we packed our gear and hiked down to the parade deck. Hulking gray CH-53 super stallions, bigger than school buses, waited to ferry us over to the basic school. It was my first helicopter ride. We sat on nylon benches along the sides of the cargo bay, and I looked past the tail ramp as the parade deck and our barracks fell away beneath us. Crossing I-95, I looked down at the cars filled with commuters. Clean people, well-fed, rested, in control of their days. I realized I wouldn't trade places with any of them.
Candidates were grouped in fours as we gathered at the edge of the TBS landing zone. A second lieutenant met each group. These men had been on the crucible not long before and knew to take us straight to the chow hall. We filled our plates with macaroni and pizza and ate slowly. No sergeant instructors lined the paths to our seats. No one threatened us for looking around the room or failing to keep our boot heels together. It felt rebellious. We went back for seconds. Outside the chow hall, the platoon assembled in a formation. We were filthy but stood straight. Our rows and columns were perfectly aligned. Sergeant Olds made his way down each row, stopping before every candidate to shake his right hand and press a cold piece of metal into his left. I hoped Olds would say something encouraging to me, maybe note my improvement, or say he had enjoyed having me in the class. Instead, he locked me with unblinking eyes and said, You ain't done yet. But we were done. I held the coveted Eagle Globe and Anchor. I snuck a look when Olds moved on to the next candidate in the formation. One inch across and anodized in black, it was a pin, eventually for wearing on a dress uniform. It was the symbol of the Marine Corps, immortalized on bumper stickers and baseball caps across America. With it in hand, I could go back to college for my senior year. When I returned to Quantico, it would be as a second lieutenant. On June 12, 1999, in Dartmouth's Baker Library, I raised my right hand to take the oath of office as a Marine Corps second lieutenant. I do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. My mother pinned the gold bars on my epaulets, and my father presented me with the Mameluke sword. After OCS graduation, I could have walked away from the Marines with no obligation. The Marine Corps liked the program, because it attracted people who might not sign up for four years otherwise. Candidates liked it because we could return to school for a year and debate whether we wanted to go back to the Marines for a longer stay. For me, it was no decision at all. OCS had planted the hook. I hadn't suffered through ten weeks at Quantico for nothing. My classmates would soon be marching off to their graduate schools and consulting jobs, but our paths had not yet diverged. We still lived in the same world. Walking together, out into the sunlight on the Hanover Green, I felt the first twinge of impending separation. I had already noticed a subtle change in my worldview. My tolerance for abstract theories and academic posturing had evaporated. Instead of classes in philosophy and classical languages, I gravitated toward national security and current events. When the Marines went into Kosovo, Macedonia, and Liberia, I followed their progress every day. The world's problems felt closer and more personal. I had orders to check into the basic school, called TBS, on a Sunday in November 1999. The TBS campus, called Camp Barrett, looks more like a dilapidated community college than the cradle of the Marine Officer Corps. On that first Monday morning, I watched lieutenants hurrying back and forth between classes. They carried brief bags and plastic coffee mugs, like graduate students. Camp Barrett's dozen anonymous buildings include two barracks, several classrooms, a pool, a theater, and an armory, all surrounded by flat expanses of grass that double as playing fields when not being used as helicopter landing zones. We would spend the next six months at Camp Barrett, learning all the basic skills we would need as Marine officers. The compound's only distinctive feature is Iron Mike, 
a bronze statue of a marine holding a rifle in his right hand and waving on unseen men with his left. The name is a misnomer, because the figure is actually Lieutenant Colonel William Leftwich. In 1970, Colonel Leftwich had commanded the 1st Reconnaissance Battalion in Vietnam. We new lieutenants knew nothing of 1st Recon, except that it boasted the best unit insignia in the whole Marine Corps, a skull and crossbones superimposed on the blue diamond of the 1st Marine Division, surrounded by the words, swift, silent, deadly. Colonel Leftwich had ridden along on the emergency extraction of his reconnaissance teams. These were the most dangerous missions of all. Teams calling for emergency extract had usually been compromised and suffered casualties and were being chased by larger enemy forces. After rescuing a team called Rush Act on a stormy day, the helicopter carrying Leftwich and his Marines had flown into a mountainside, killing everyone aboard. It was next to Iron Mike that our class assembled that morning. I stood by the statue, conscious again that I was being intentionally steeped in the history of the Corps and its heroes. Around me stretched the six platoons of Alpha Company, 224 newly commissioned second lieutenants. A lanky guy with a wry smile stood next to me, and I turned to introduce myself. He took my hand, saying, Jim Beal, Tennessee. I couldn't know that morning how much Jim and I would share in the coming two years. I knew only that his laid-back confidence was reassuring, another indicator that TBS would be different from officer candidate school. Jim's barracks room was next to mine. Platoons of 40 lieutenants were divided into squads of 13 or 14, and the squads were further divided into fire teams of four or five. Jim and I were half our fire team. We would spend the next six months at Camp Barrett, learning all the basic skills we would need as Marine officers. The Corps' mantra is, every Marine a rifleman. Its corollary is, every Marine officer a rifle platoon commander. In the Marine Corps, jet pilots, clerks, and truck drivers are all infantrymen first. TBS would teach us those basic infantry skills, plus all the rules, regulations, and administrative requirements that are part of a peacetime military. The greatest topic of conversation at TBS was MOS selection. Military occupational specialties are the specific jobs in the Corps. Aviator, artillery, logistics, tanks, infantry, and others. And they're competitive. We would be assigned to the various specialties according to class rank. The most coveted of them was infantry. President Harry Truman once said that the Marines had a propaganda machine second only to Stalin's. He was right. My impression of the Corps, even as a newly commissioned officer, was one of a lean, mean fighting force, all teeth and no tail. I was shocked when my platoon commander, Captain McHugh, told his assembled lieutenants that only 10% of us would be infantry officers. The rest would go on to the other combat arms, artillery, amphibious assault vehicles, and tanks, or to support jobs such as supply, administration, and even financial management. McHugh urged us to keep an open mind and learn about each job before deciding which to compete for. I nodded, but knew that only one thing would satisfy me, infantry officer. I wanted the purity of a man with a weapon traveling great distances on foot, navigating, stalking, calculating, using personal skill. I couldn't let a jet or a tank get in the way, and I certainly wasn't going to sit behind a desk. The grunt life was untainted, I sensed a continuity with other infantrymen stretching back to Thermopylae. 
Weapons and tactics may have changed, but they were only accoutrements. The men stayed the same. In a time of satellites and missile strikes, the part of me that felt I'd been born too late was drawn to the infantry, where courage still counts. Being a Marine was not about money for graduate school or learning a skill. It was a rite of passage in a society becoming so soft and homogenized that the very concept was often sneered at. I loved TBS as much as I had hated OCS. Jim joked that the acronym stood for the Bleeding Sphincter, but the pace was high, the material was clearly relevant, and we were finally being trained instead of screened. We spent our first month on the rifle range, learning to shoot the M16 and the Beretta 9mm pistol. Some of my classmates had been hunters since they'd learned to walk, but I had fired a gun only two or three times in my life. The Marine Corps is a gun club, the infantry most of all, and I realized I was starting with a deficit. I had three weeks to pay attention and learn how to shoot. On the last morning, qualification day, we would shoot for score, and the score would determine what shooting badge we wore on our uniforms. Those who barely qualified would be marksmen. Above them were sharpshooters, and the best riflemen would be experts. It's like condoms, Jim explained. Large, extra large, and extra, extra large. I laughed, but in my mind, no self-respecting infantry officer could stand in front of his first platoon with anything less than an expert shooting badge. The Marines' known distance shooting course features slow and rapid shots at human-sized targets from 200, 300, and 500 yards. Slow shots work out to about one round per minute from the sitting, kneeling, and standing positions. Rapid shots emphasize firing, re-aiming, and firing again, ten rounds in a minute. We aimed through iron sights, not scopes, and learned that good shooting is a matter of discipline. There's no zen involved, and hardly any luck. Do what you're told, and you'll hit the target. The Corps teaches three fundamentals of marksmanship. Sight picture, bone support, and natural point of aim. Sight picture is lining up the rifle's front and rear sights with the target, a simple enough proposition. Bone support means resting the rifle on the steadiest surface available, bone. Muscles and tendons waver and shake, but bone resting on earth is like a tripod for a camera. The third element, natural point of aim, is the most important. With each of the shooter's breaths, the rifle muzzle rises. It settles with exhalation back to the natural resting point between breaths, the natural point of aim. Make the bullseye your natural point of aim. Squeeze the trigger near the bottom of your breath, and you'll hit the target. For two weeks, we ran through the fundamentals, arriving at the range in the pre-dawn darkness and staying until mid-afternoon. I learned that consistency is key, and I was maniacal about it. Same light breakfast each morning, same layers of clothing, same method of cleaning my rifle at the end of each day. The weather was gorgeous, cool mornings giving way to warm sun with almost no wind. It was perfect shooting weather. We began firing for score in the third week, but only Thursday would count. There were 300 possible points on the course, and I needed 220 to qualify as an expert. On Monday, I shot 180. Tuesday, 210. Wednesday, 220. Hovering at the cusp, I went to bed Wednesday night thinking about consistency. I had to replicate everything perfectly. The only element out of my control was the weather. I woke at 4 a.m. on Thursday and pulled open the blinds on my only window. 
Rain streaked the glass, and naked trees danced in the wind. A cold December morning. Damn. It was still dark when we reached the range. I could barely make out the red wind flags through 200 yards of blowing mist. They snapped parallel to the ground, the strongest wind I'd ever shot in. I sat on my ammo can in the dark, shivering and waiting for enough light to start. I thought about the fundamentals as I rubbed a clear spot on the frosty ground at the 200-yard line. Sight picture, bone support, natural point of aim. Do what you've been taught and you'll hit the target. Chills shook my body. I had a sweater and jacket in my pack, but fought the urge to put them on. Consistency. I hadn't worn a jacket on the warm days earlier in the week. That extra millimeter of fabric on my arm now would have an outsized effect on the little black disc five football fields away. I willed myself warm. With a magazine of ten rounds, load, the rangemaster's voice echoed through the fog from his perch in the tower above and behind us. Make ready. I racked my charging handle to the rear and chambered around. Shooters, you may fire when your target appears. I settled my breathing, letting the muzzle rise and fall naturally. I centered the rifle's front sight post in the aperture of the rear sight and put it on the black target. I pulled my elbows in tight to my body, squirming in the mud to make one connection between rifle, bone, and dirt. Breathing naturally, I made little adjustments until every exhalation put the target in the center of my sights. Then I squeezed the trigger. Wide to the right. I dialed in a click of windage to correct for the gusts and fired again. Wide to the right. Relax. Easy breaths. Back to the basics. Ignore the distractions. No cold. No rain. No wind. Do what they taught you. Line it up. Good support. Easy trigger pull. Bullseye. My next 20 shots were all in the black. Shooting was mechanical. Rote. The key, as we'd heard so many times, was practicing the stroke and making it instinct. The only skill involved was learning the lessons of those who'd gone before. By the time I walked off the 500-yard line, I had shot a 231. Learning institutional lessons is the overarching theme of the classes at TBS. Our instructors were fond of pointing at the pile of tactics manuals on each of our desks and saying, these books are written in the blood of lieutenants and captains who went before you. Learn from their mistakes. Don't repeat them. We learned the six troop leading procedures by the acronym BAMSIS, which means begin planning, arrange for reconnaissance, make reconnaissance, complete the plan, issue the order, supervise. We used MET-T to estimate a tactical situation in order to complete the plan. It stood for mission, enemy, terrain, troops and fire support available, time. Most of all, we began to issue orders. Not yelled commands in mid-assault, but multi-page written orders built around the five-paragraph format called SMEAC. Situation. Mission. Execution. Administration and logistics. Command and signal. We wrote dozens of them. Instruction at TBS goes far beyond rote memorization, growing into some amalgamation of chess, history, boxing, and game theory. We studied the fog and friction of war, how the simplest things become difficult. During our written test on the subject, the instructors cranked Metallica at full volume 
hurled tennis balls at our heads, and sprayed our faces with water pistols. The lesson was, focus, ignore the distractions, and do your job. We learned about warfare's dynamism. We wouldn't be fighting wax men in castles. In our instructor's words, the enemy has a vote too. When confronting an opposing will, we fight people who are also fighting us. They will learn as we learn. Their tactics will evolve as ours do. The key consideration in any tactical move is to turn the map around. Look at your own situation from the enemy's perspective. What are your vulnerabilities? Where will he hit you? And what can you do to defeat him? Speed, we were taught, is a weapon. Be aggressive. Keep the tempo high. The Marine Corps' hallmark is maneuver warfare, slipping around the enemy's hard surfaces and into his open gaps. Never attack into the teeth of the guns. We learned that indecision is a decision, that inaction has a cost all its own. Good commanders act and create opportunities. Great commanders ruthlessly exploit those opportunities and throw the enemy into disarray. This is the art of war. Some of the terms were new, but the principles have been recorded by Thucydides, Sun Tzu, and Clausewitz. Our evaluation at TBS was in three columns, leadership, academics, and military skills. The last was the most significant, and first among those skills was tactical command. We spent much of the winter in the woods and fields surrounding Camp Barrett, practicing tactics as squads and platoons. We attacked and defended, ambushed, raided, patrolled, and did reconnaissance. Lieutenants rotated as leaders of the missions. Before every operation, the leader wrote and delivered a formal order. Sometimes the order stretched into dozens of pages, accounting for every detail of navigation, communication, resupply, and actions upon running into the enemy. We bitched and complained about the onerous process of writing orders. Would we have time for this in combat? Of course not, and that was the point. We wrote so many orders in SMEAC format that its components became ingrained, in December, when I was given a tactical problem and one minute to identify key considerations, I may have come up with five. By March, I saw 30. In May, 50. Our assessment process sped up, and with it our actions. We learned to use speed as a weapon, to create opportunities and exploit them. One of TBS's most important training evolutions was a five-day field exercise called O&D Week, short for offense and defense. It took place just before MOS selection, so the staff used it as a final vetting of the lieutenants who wanted infantry slots. Captain McHugh turned up the heat on me. On our last full day in the field, he pulled me aside. We stood on a low hilltop, and I could see through the budding trees for a hundred yards in every direction. Lieutenant Fick, I have a mission for you. McHugh reminded me of the Civil War hero Joshua Chamberlain, a tall, austere New Englander. His smile hovered between mischievous and sadistic. The Marine Corps fights at night. This evening, for the first time, your platoon will fight at night. I want you to be platoon commander for our first night attack. Captain McHugh ran through the scenario using Met-T. Intelligence assets reported an enemy platoon somewhere in the area. They were static, guarding a cache of supplies. My job was to locate and destroy the platoon before midnight. McHugh smiled and added, The terrain will be Quantico-like. It had become a running joke that all our missions, in hypothetical countries around the globe, 
were conducted on Quantico-like terrain. Bird-dogging me on the mission would be one of the staff instructors, Captain Gibson. Gibson was a tight-skinned little infantry officer. I'd first noticed him in his dress blues in Camp Barrett's bar. He wore the only combat valor award I'd ever seen in real life. One of the lieutenants asked him how he'd earned it. I did my job, he replied. Now Gibson stood next to me, watching a helicopter drop into the landing zone behind us. That smell. That smell. Gibson closed his eyes as if remembering a particularly delicious meal. The smell of jet exhaust pumping out the pipes of a helicopter, waiting to take you and your marines to kill the enemy. I love that smell. I was unsure what to make of him, so I focused on the mission. A night attack. Thirty-five people. Unfamiliar terrain. I clicked through the checklist of tactical considerations we'd learned in the classroom. First, we had to locate the enemy position. Turn the map around. I unfolded the laminated sheet from my cargo pocket. Supplies meant supply lines. Roads. There were only two road intersections in our zone, and we'd patrolled within a hundred meters of one of them earlier in the day. It hadn't been occupied. I was willing to bet my shot at infantry on the enemy platoon being at the other intersection. Begin planning. Arrange reconnaissance. Make reconnaissance. Sir, I want to recon this road intersection. I pointed at the spot on the map, and I want to leave now so I can get there before sunset. I settled the platoon into a loose perimeter. They would guard the hilltop until we returned. I gathered three other marines and we set off toward the intersection, with Captain Gibson shadowing a few meters behind. We were racing the sun. I wanted to reach the intersection in time to see the terrain in daylight, and then return to brief the platoon before it was completely dark. Following trails, rivers, or other natural lines of drift is a lazy Marine's death wish, a tactical sin we had been taught never to commit. I led us straight down a creek bed, imagining Captain Gibson crossing out infantry in his notebook and replacing it with supply. But the risk was calculated, not a gamble. We had to hurry, and this little valley would be a comfortable feature to steer the platoon in the dark. Fog. Friction. Keep it simple. For the first time all week, I was grateful for Virginia's humidity. Moisture in the air muffled our whispered voices and dulled the clanks of rifles and gear vests on branches. Sodden leaves deformed compliantly underfoot, and we padded along as if on pile carpet. Draws cut into the hillside to our left. According to my map, the third one we passed would lead us up to the road intersection. I counted them, trying to match the lines on the map to the rolling terrain. When we reached the third notch in the hillside, I knelt down next to an oak tree and motioned the marines around me. This is our turn. Take a good look and remember it for later. I'm taping an IR chem light to this tree so we have a guide in the dark. I unwrapped an infrared chemical glow stick, visible only through night vision goggles, and cracked it. Using a roll of electrical tape looped around a carabiner on my web gear, I taped the chem light to the tree trunk at knee level positioning it to be visible from down the valley we would approach from, but not from higher in the draw near the road intersection. Slowly and silently, we began to move up the draw. Less than 300 meters from the tree where I'd taped the chem light, I dropped to a knee again. The human eye notices movement and contrast. Up ahead, through the dense leaves, I saw a color lighter than anything around us. Too light. Man-made light. 
We crept forward, inching along on our hands and knees and moving diagonally out of the draw to the high ground on the side where we could take a better look. The color was dirt. Freshly turned, piled, reddish-orange dirt. Fighting hole dirt, dug by the enemy platoon. I eased down onto my stomach and debated whether to move closer. We'd found them. Now, with a little more snooping, I could figure out how they were set up. Maybe even locate the end of their line so we could come back with the whole platoon and turn their flank. Rather than attack into their defenses, we could go around and hit them from behind. Maneuver. Captain McHugh would be impressed. But I fought the urge. This reconnaissance mission had already been a success. We located the enemy and marked a route by which to return. Greed could cost me all my gains. We would probably be compromised if we tried to get closer in daylight. The smart thing to do was to back away and be thankful. I remembered the 80% solution. A good plan now was better than a perfect plan later. We'd crossed the threshold of action. This was enough information to do the job. Now, the task was to do it. We backed slowly down the side of the draw. The other Marines fell into formation around me, and we looped back up the river valley to the waiting platoon, careful not to retrace our steps. In the fading light, I briefed my squad leaders. There wasn't time for a full operations order. I was thankful for all those months of repetition. Mission. Enemy. Terrain. Signal plan. Casualties. Navigation. Fire support. We huddled under a poncho to hide the red lens flashlight. I ran through the plan. The other lieutenants nodded, confident that we had covered the most likely contingencies. We would step off one hour after sunset. I guided the point man through the trees with silent glances and hand motions. A quarter moon shone overhead, bright enough to see the outlines of marines among the trees, but not enough to cast shadows. I scanned ahead with my night vision goggles, hoping the infrared chem light was making good on its advertised eight-hour burn time. Every marine is a cynic, and every cynic knows our equipment is made by the lowest bidder. I cursed myself for not taping two lights to the tree. For the cynic, two is one, and one is none. Just when I began to worry that we had passed the turn, I saw the light ahead. I steered the platoon up into the draw and signaled for them to stop. Each marine dropped obediently to a knee, turning the moving column into a stationary, cigar-shaped perimeter. I peered over the hill and saw the faint outlines of turned dirt. A dim, red-lens flashlight bounced along in the hand of a person walking the lines of the enemy position. They were still there, and apparently they didn't know that we were again here. I grabbed Jim Beal, who was in charge of our machine guns. Take the guns to the top of this hill, set up quietly. I'm taking the platoon around to the right. Jim nodded, and I whispered, We'll initiate with a radio call. Green Star backup. And then you suppress all along that ridge line as we sweep across from right to left. Consolidate on the objective. Got that? Jim flashed a thumbs up. I planned to start the attack with an order on the radio. If that didn't work, I would fire a green flare into the sky as a signal to open fire. The machine guns would shift their fire across the enemy position in advance of our attacking marines, hopefully mowing down resistance like a scythe. As Jim crawled up the hill with his machine gunners in tow, the squad leaders took their marines around its base to set up for our assault. We had to move quickly. This was the time of maximum danger. 
lots of people moving close to the enemy position. Conventional doctrine says that attackers should outnumber defenders by three to one. We were about one to one. To be compromised would rob us of our only advantage. Surprise. The guys up near the road intersection were Marines, too, trained in the same school as we were. They would have security patrols out, and avoiding them in this darkness would be largely a matter of luck. I hoped ours would hold. We reached our assault position without any shouting or gunfire disturbing the dark woods. I took a deep breath and a last look at my compass. It would be unforgivable to begin firing the machine guns and then charge off in the wrong direction. Machine guns, begin your suppression, I whispered into the radio. Jim's only answer was the rat-a-tatting of the guns. Even shooting blanks, the thing sounded formidable, ripping guttural roars shattering the night. Let's go, I shouted. No more whispering now. Trying to strike my best Colonel Leftwich pose, I pointed my rifle at our targets and waved the platoon forward. Marines streamed up the hill, lit in the eerie, swaying light of overhead flares. Our positioning was perfect. We hit the enemy position squarely on its eastern flank. The goal of every attacker, and the fear of every defender, is enfilading fire. Shooting along a position's length so that more bullets have a better chance of hitting a target. We fired straight down the enfilade of the trenches. Marines in their sleeping bags struggled to find weapons in the dark and were shot point-blank. Not everything went our way, though. Through the smoke and noise, I saw Captain Gibson and Captain McHugh moving across the hillside like angels of death. You're dead. You're dead. They pointed to my Marines and the defenders alike, pushing shoulders and backs to the ground, personifying the fate and caprice of the battlefield. You, get down. You're dead. To my left, the machine guns sparkled, shooting fake bullets but firing real tongues of flame from their muzzles. Standing in the center of the enemy position, with Captain Gibson at my side, I yelled to the Marines on the hillside, Consolidate! Dark shapes appeared from fighting holes and clumps of trees, forming a loose circle around the crown of the hill. With a lot of luck and some good reconnaissance, we'd accomplished one of the hardest infantry missions, locating and capturing a fortified position in the dark. I was elated. Lieutenant Fick, come with me. Captain McHugh led the way back down the hill toward the trench lines. Good attack, well-organized, fast, and accurate, but I want you to take a look around. He reached into his cargo pocket and launched a white flare up through the trees. It hissed overhead, swinging in its parachute, casting moving shadows across the hill. Crumpled on the ground were the bodies of my fallen Marines, eleven of them from a platoon of thirty-five. Even when you win, you lose. By the books, these are great numbers. You captured a fortified position, outnumbered, and lost less than a third of your people. But that's eleven letters to eleven mothers, eleven funerals, eleven names you'll never forget for the rest of your life. Nice job tonight, but you paid a price for it. I looked around at the bodies as the flare flickered out. Captain McHugh smiled. Dead Marines, rise. You're healed. Go forth and conquer. The lumps rose, dusted themselves off, and jogged up the hill. McHugh motioned for me to follow them and put a hand on my shoulder. This was an easy attack. No air to coordinate, no artillery, no other units to your flanks. We're gaming the game. Your enemy was stationary and you knew where he was. It'll be a lot harder at the infantry officer course. I froze and looked back at McHugh. It won't be official for another month, he said. 
but I'm going to make you a grunt. TBS graduation was a big deal for everyone except the grunts. Jim moved to Oklahoma for artillery school, and our other classmates left for places like Pensacola or San Diego. We carried our few belongings to a row of rooms along an upstairs hallway in the barracks. The infantry officer course, known as IOC, was just across the street. IOC's mission was to train the best small unit infantry leaders in the world. It was a tall order for ten weeks. If we crawled at OCS and walked at TBS, then IOC was a full-out sprint. Classes built on what we'd already learned, adding nuance and complexity. We studied the full spectrum of marine operations, not only conventional combat, but also the countless gradations of peacekeeping and nation-building that had occupied the military since the end of the Gulf War. It was the summer of 2000, before the October attack on the USS Cole in Yemen and before 9-11. The U.S. military, from our perspective as fledgling officers, was equipped to fight the Soviets and training to fight another Somalia. But the Marine Corps was innovating. The whole institution was leaning forward, trying to feel out the next fight. The summer's buzz phrase was low-intensity conflict. We learned that the interventions of the 1990s had taught the Marines a lesson. Low-intensity conflict was not combat light. The unspoken assumption among earlier groups of officers was that a platoon that trained to attack a fortified position knew how to hand out food. A platoon that ran a good ambush patrol could figure out how to build a school. The IOC staff acknowledged that this was mostly uncharted territory and promised only that we would do our best to prepare for it. Low-intensity conflict put special demands on young officers and their Marines. We learned about the concept of the three-block war. In this model, Marines could be passing out rice in one city block, patrolling to keep the peace in the next, and engaged in a full-scale firefight in the third. Mental flexibility was the key. A second concept we labored over was the strategic corporal. 21st century warfare places massive destructive power in the hands of even the junior-most Marine and then beams his image in real time to living rooms around the world. A single Marine's actions could have strategic repercussions, good or bad. With no major conflict looming, we trained to do riot control and humanitarian missions, and to work with the media. Infusing all this was a strong dose of moral reflection on the nature of our job. I was learning that most Marines, behind the tough-talking facade, are idealists. Captain Novak, a TV-perfect infantry officer, told us earnestly that our responsibilities as leaders would be three, to be ready when called, to win every time, and to return our Marines to society better than they were when we got them. We learned that moral courage is as important as physical courage. Leaders have an ethical responsibility to serve as buffers protecting their subordinates and a moral obligation to act from the courage of their own convictions. The moral courage of their leaders is what separates combat units from armed mobs. Despite the heady classroom sessions, IOC is a warfighting school. During most of our three months there, we left Camp Barrett on Monday morning and returned on Friday evening, spending our weeks shooting machine guns and mortars, calling in artillery and close air support, and training for urban combat in a mock city of cinderblock buildings called Combat Town. Near the end of IOC, our focus shifted to a Marine's most deadly weapon, his mind. Novak had taught us about the combat mindset, both the tactical need to be a predator 
and the moral imperative to know where to draw the line. Thus primed, we were deemed ready for a formal introduction to society's ultimate taboo. I slid into the classroom early one morning with the other lieutenants, tracking wet boot prints across the floor. Rain drilled against the windows. We were loud and happy to be inside with styrofoam cups of coffee and cheese danishes instead of getting soaked in combat town. A single word in block letters covered the chalkboard. Killology. The door opened and Captain Novak led an anonymous man to the podium. Good morning, gents, Novak said. You've heard me run my mouth about speed, surprise, and violence of action. Violence of action doesn't start with weapons and tactics. It starts in your head. Novak turned to the man by his side. This is Dr. Clayt DiGiovanni. Dr. DiGiovanni, we call him Dr. Death around here, is a psychiatrist. Before he started shrinking heads, he was an officer in the CIA's Directorate of Operations and the Special Operations Group in Vietnam. He speaks your language. Good morning, Marines. Dr. DiGiovanni spoke with solemn control. My nickname is Unfortunate because my job is to help keep you and your troops alive. He defined killology as the study of healthy people's reactions to killing. Its corollaries are the factors that enable killing and the maintenance of psychiatric health during prolonged exposure to mortal danger. Di Giovanni explained that an infantryman's effectiveness is more fundamental than his ability to shoot a rifle or carry a heavy pack. All else is predicated on psychiatric health. A slide projector whirred to life, casting a square of blank light on the screen at the front of the room. Di Giovanni explained that the first step toward understanding the topic was exposure to violent death. The pictures you're about to see are very graphic. Young infantry officers, like yourselves, in Vietnam. The photos were indeed of young men like us, but after suffering horrific trauma to their heads and torsos, I had to squint and tilt my head to separate the victim's eyes from mouths from cheekbones. High-velocity rifle bullets tear through bone and flesh, destroying all vestiges of animate humanity. I could not help but contextualize the pictures. Platoon commanders, recent graduates of this same school, who shipped off to take their first commands. They woke up one morning, pulled on their ate breakfast, and never guessed that nightfall would find them as Exhibit A, in the killology curriculum of other lieutenants. Graduated from IOC on a Friday morning in September. My father came down to Quantico for the ceremonial breakfast and proud to have to have sitting there next and next. After coffee, Captain Novak was. He can he congratulate class on completing, completing one of the most challenging small unit leadership courses in the world and passed on some last minute, last minute advice. Your Marines will expect four things to thing you, you. Competence, courage, consistency, and compassion. No more blank ammunition, gentlemen, 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 continued. From now on, when this country dials 911, it's calling you. After IOC graduation, I drove across the country to Camp Pendleton, north of San Diego, and got ready to report to the 1st Battalion of the 1st Marine Regiment known as 1-1. Being the first of the first sounded good to me, but I was anxious. This wasn't just another school. It was my first command in the fleet. I hoped I knew enough to avoid embarrassing myself or getting someone hurt. I took a deep breath and rapped three times on the cinder block wall outside the door marked Company Commander. Come on in. Good morning, sir. Lieutenant Fick, reporting is ordered. 
I snapped to attention in front of the metal desk with my eyes locked on the rear wall. Captain Whitmer stood to shake my hand. He looked like the actor Ed Harris, chiseled in gray. Rich Whitmer, welcome aboard, grab a seat. He pointed to the small sofa in front of his desk. A helmet and flak jacket lay on the floor next to it, and I tried to absorb other details in the room without his noticing my wandering gaze. A Michigan State mug, a photo of a little boy, and engraved awards from an infantry platoon and a counter-narcotics unit in Thailand. Captain Whitmer's defining feeling was calm. He seemed to know exactly what was on my mind. Each of an infantry battalion, battalion rifle rifles, primary means of getting to and from its objectives, helicopters, amphibious assault vehicles called Amtrak, Amtraks, and, and Zodiac boats. At IOC, he, he learned Marines score by score by go. Our, our consensus was that, it was that if we were stationed near, near relatively warm, warm Atlantic, boats would be impractical but fun. Cold Pacific, boats would be miserable. Now, Whitmer said, hope you don't mind freezing. Bravo Company is boats. Next, he told me that I would command Bravo's weapons platoon. Each infantry company has four platoons, three rifle and one weapons. Leading a rifle platoon, 40 Marines with M16s, is a new lieutenant's typical first job. But weapons platoon is different. Its 45 Marines are divided into sections for machine guns, assault rockets, and mortars, the bulk of the company's company's since employing the weapons platoon is complex, its commander is usually a senior lieutenant who's already led a rifle platoon. Captain Whitmer asked if I was comfortable taking weapons on my first day in the fleet. Yes, sir, sir, absolutely. In fact, absolutely not. Whitmer nodded, nodded with a smile that under, under my reservation, expected me to figure it out.